Welcome back to Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers, the podcast devoted to exploring the frontiers of psychedelic medicine and what it takes to cultivate a healthy mind, body, and spirit. I'm Dr. Steve Thayer, and today my co-host, Dr. Reed Robison, and I discuss how habits shape our lives for both good and and uh, for not so good. This is an important episode, folks. If, if you can master a few key habit formation skills, you can drastically improve life satisfaction. I want to say thank you to all of you who have emailed us and given us positive reviews in places like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Um, Reed and I don't do this podcast for nothing. We do it for you. And it is immensely gratifying when we hear that you are benefiting from our content. So thank you for listening. We hope you continue to listen. Please enjoy this episode on habits. You know, Reed, one of my favorite movies is Batman Begins, starring Christian Bale, directed by Christopher Nolan. And in that movie, you know, Batman's on the roof and he's talking to his love interest, Rachel Dawes. And he says back to her something she said to him earlier in the movie and something like, you know, it's not, it's not who I am underneath. It's what I do that defines me. And uh, I think that is a perfect intro, apart from me just being a huge nerd and loving Batman, to our topic today of habits. This idea that you are what you repeatedly do. That if you want to change who you are, you change what you rehearse. I knew you had an impression in you. When you said Batman, um, I, I I didn't I didn't even fully commit. I, I fully commit to that impression. It's uh it's rough. Yeah. Would you like a do over or no? Uh, oh, let's try it. It's not who I am underneath, but what I do that defines me. Oh, <laughs> I, that, I think I peaked the mic, but yeah, that had Yoda vibes in it too. Mm, there you go. <laughs> uh, no, it's it's impressive, and I I love what you said about. We are what we repeatedly do um, because I, that's a mantra I remind myself and others of often. Um, but uh, you want to do a little exercise, a habit yeah. inventory bird game is Love what it. I'm just deciding to call it. It's something <laughs> I'll, I'll do with clients uh, sometimes through the course of ketamine assisted psychotherapy or doing therapy work in general. But so here we go. And listeners, follow along. Even if you're driving, I believe this can be done safely. Just don't do the eye-closing part. Mm -hmm. um, so imagine there's a little bird on your windowsill who sees everything you do every day. It's a friendly bird, wants the best for you. And it's one who will call you on your BS. Okay, and if you'd like, if you're not driving, you could write these answers down, but otherwise just think about them. And uh, this will be a good starting point for an audit of your habits. All right. So for you, Steve, what does the little bird see you do every day? Uh, think about that. Like what does it notice about your daily habits? And then ask yourself these questions. What do these habits reveal about you as a person? What does life look like in another five years, given that we are what we repeatedly do? Ooh, and what do your habits, your behaviors each day sh show you about your values and priorities? Or um, last question, is there a gap between how you are, like what, how you're showing up, what you're doing repeatedly, and who you'd like to be? 
and then uh, this is all in the spirit of awareness being half the battle, the first step, because then we get to consciously dive in and uh, uh, manifest whatever kind of uh, life habits that we'd like uh, more aligned with our purpose, our hopes, our dreams, our values. So what do you think? What, what did the bird see in you, Steve? You know, the bird saw some habits that I uh, really love that I've established some habits that um, keep me healthy and give me peace of mind, help me stay connected to those I love. And then the bird also saw some habits that are self-defeating and probably the product of me trying not to feel certain things. So probably one of the most uh, self-defeating habits I have is uh, scrolling social media. So scrolling Instagram or TikTok, which... Mm -hmm. You know, it's a double-edged sword. I really enjoy a lot of the content. A lot of it's educational. A lot of it's very entertaining. Um, and it's fairly mindless. It's not a horrible way to unwind, except it becomes really automatic. And uh, I know I start to notice that whenever there's boredom or whenever there's a spare moment at home, I'm turning to my phone to fill that space. So what does it say about who I am? That's a tough one. Because I think we can get a little over judgmental, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's okay to unwind with some mindless scrolling intentionally as a break, right? Uh, who am mm -hmm. I to say it's okay? Like, you know, it's, it's, I would recommend not judging ourselves harshly on um, all the little things and taking more of an inventory of like, how much does this take up of your day and how often are we talking about? Um, yeah, the context of your life matters, right? So if I if I have a, like a goal that I want to work on, you know, uh, my memoir at night, or I want to start a business or something like that, and I instead of doing that thing, I'm playing video games, scrolling through social media, whatever. Then I have a habit that's competing for an alternative habit that is more aligned with my aspirational identity. And uh, I've heard it said, I think James Clare said this, the author of Atomic Habits. You know, we're going to be drawing a lot from, from his content here in this episode because it's so good. But uh, um, he said something like, every, every habit is a vote cast for your future self. So yeah. every time you, you engage in a behavior, you're casting a vote for who you are going to become. These little incremental behaviors will eventually compound, right? I've also heard it said that habits are the, the compound interest of self-improvement, but that it can also be the compound interest of, you know, self, uh, defeating, whatever of the opposite of self-improvement, right? Um, so yeah, what well, you do matters. Uh, but yeah, we should, probably shouldn't judge ourselves as you stated too harshly for it. Yeah. And I like to, uh, keep that awareness alive throughout the day. Like every time I'm entering a new thing, like a new chapter of my day or engaging in a new behavior within reason, this isn't like all the time. I like to ask, why is this in my life? Why am I doing this? Like if I'm going, especially if I'm going to put something in my body, <laughs> mm -hmm. why is this in my hand? Why is it going uh, towards my mouth <laughs> or um, just having that spirit of awareness and mindfulness around what we do to check in with our intentions, our values and, and things, because it is, like you said, the little behaviors over the long run matter, like one little victory today, uh, 
in moving towards your values, hopes, and dreams can go a long way when you look at it five years from now. Right. And to your point, most of what we do is pretty automatic, right? Pretty automatic, pretty habit-driven. And so a good exercise, a good mindful awareness generating exercise would be throughout the day, uh, you could even carry around a little card or put it in your notes app in your phone or whatever, but just write down the different habit cues, the triggers for Uh your habits that you notice. You know, who are you with? What are you doing? Where are you? What time of day is it? What kind of emotions are you feeling or trying not to feel when you're engaging in this behavior? And pretty soon you'll notice that a lot of what you do day to day is driven by these subconscious automatic habit patterns. Yeah, I think I saw a metric recently um, that nearly 50% of your daily routine is uh, habit driven or your daily actions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, kind of a funny one is, you know, every time I I go in to use the bathroom, especially if I'm going to be a, a sit down bathroom time, then uh-huh. I just, you know, automatically search for my phone if it's not on me. And when I'm aware of that, sometimes I'll go in there and be like, you know what, I'm going to do bathroom time with no phone. See how this goes. Yeah. And uh, I can, I notice like a little bit of discomfort, like oh, I'm going to have to just sit there and be bored. I can't be on social media. Like I can't be scrolling Reddit. We call that going number two, Steve. That's the official scientific <laughs> term. My, so my father, uh, he was an old guy. He's not alive anymore, but he started my, his family at age 45. So I was born when he was in his mid-50s. So he had a lot of old-timey, at least it was old-timey to me, phrases. And I remember mm-hmm. going number two in my household was going BM. BM referring ah. to bowel movement. Hey, um, that is actually scientific. Yeah. It was very literal, but then yeah. his, his, uh, his word for number one, it wasn't like you're going to go urinate or it was, you're going to go wet. Oh, interesting. Very um, interesting. growing up, uh, in my home, we weren't allowed to say fart and <laughs> you know, what we said instead, I'll give you one guess. Fluff. Toot. Toot. Oh, there we go. Yeah. That's cute. Yeah, it is. Huh? So later on, I named a company Toot, Toot Genomics. It was spelled a little differently, but um, <laughs> it was fun. Yeah. Um, but speaking of my dad, you know, he was a man of habits. This guy loved routine. So uh-huh. um, he was a college professor. He was an English professor. And he worked as an English professor in that job for close to 53 years, I think, 54 years. Um and he walked to work from our house every day, about a mile and a half to and from. And I, you could set your watch by that guy. I knew when he was coming home, I knew exactly what time it was because my dad was coming home. Um, and he had, he was an author too. He wrote fiction, Douglas Thayer, if any of you are curious, he wrote uh, some really good novels and short stories. Oh. And um, he was famous or notorious, infamous for huh. uh, having very regimented writing schedule. You know, and he would always, he would always put fingers to to typewriter, pen to paper, same time for same amount of time. And then, uh, he was, he was a draft writer, right? He would go through 20, 22, some odd drafts before he got to his final draft. So I learned from just sort of the modeling of my father, the power of consistency, the power of, of habits and showing up and doing something, committing to it repeatedly. 
Yeah, we because like you said earlier, we are what we repeatedly do. Our lives are defined by habits. They can help us achieve uh, however we define success in our lives mm-hmm. uh, or our careers, everything else. But they can also limit us big time uh, in what's possible, prevent us from getting where we want to be. Uh, and I also saw recently that um, less than 10% of people or um, people trying to break a habit succeed in it. Mm. Yeah, it kind of begs that question. Is it harder to to establish a healthy habit or is it harder to break an unhealthy habit? Mm. What's your What's your guess, your hunch? You know, I'll, I'll speak from my experience because I don't have any scientific knowledge about this. I think it's harder to break unhealthy habits than it is to yeah. establish healthy ones. And it, it depends, of course. I on uh, the type of habits we're trying to break or establish, but was following um, the thread of our neuroscience and neurotransmitter chit chat last week. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it it takes a certain amount of effort to um, fire a new neuronal pathway or to engage in a new behavior, but really, that's uh, that's seems to me to be a very small undertaking compared to changing a deeply ingrained habit. Uh, I know it depends on what kinds we're talking about and how ingrained and little, big, meaningful or not. But, but yeah, I think, uh, if you just do that as a thought exercise and, um, think about what you could engage in later on today, am I going to, um, do a or B, um, you could make that conscious choice, but to actually break a habit and insert a new one um, doesn't usually happen in an instant. Like psychedelics may represent somewhat of an exception that we can talk about, but usually it's uh, by changing it repeatedly to replace it with something else. You know, we can speak to this point by looking at mental illness and uh, addiction through the lens of habit, because yeah, you know, you you could make the argument that addiction is simply just the hardest to break habits, or that uh, you know, treatment resistant or persistent uh, dysphoric depression is a habit of thinking, a habit of feeling. It's of course much more complicated than that, but uh, in some therapeutic approaches, right, we we talk about thinking habits and how to break thinking habits. Well, look at, uh, I mean, we talked about this a little bit last time. We didn't dive in, though, when we were talking about neuroplasticity right? Um, and neurons that fire together, wire together. And um, I mentioned briefly transcranial magnetic stimulation that we have in clinics as mm-hmm. a treatment for both uh, major depressive disorder and now approved for OCD and smoking cessation. And evidence to support other things. Um, If you look at how TMS works, it's this big MRI style magnet that points at a specific part of your brain, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, and it emits this electromagnetic pulse that causes your neurons to fire in that pathway. So basically, the area of the brain that's sleepy and depression um, or underactive, the happy thought uh, part of the brain, it triggers it to fire and activate. And then we do that a few thousand times every session. And then we do that every day of the week, every weekday, at least for like 30 or 40 times. And pretty soon you've worked out this muscle, um, or you've lit up this pathway 
uh, one or 200,000 times over the course of a TMS treatment uh, regimen. And that becomes more habitual, like lighting up the more positive and less ruminating part of the brain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, for, for me, it, it helps me to think of uh, the way habits manifest neurologically. This is more metaphorical than it might be literal, but you know that, that these electrical and chemical signals will follow the path of least resistance, or they'll follow the path that's most familiar to them. And so, if that's the path that's been fired, that's why neurons wire that way. It's like these are the certain pathways that have been repeated and strengthened, and so it'll continue to follow the path of least resistance until you make another path that is less resistant <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. And so maybe TMS is acting on that. I heard a funny TMS story. I don't know how funny it is. Kind of interesting. I was listening to an interview on the, on Joe Rogan's podcast with the comedian, Neil Brennan. And he talked about a lot of really interesting things, really vulnerable about his own mental health journey. Uh, tried all types of psychedelics. His ayahuasca story is wild. If any of you who are, you know, listening to our podcast, cause you're interested in psychedelic, experiences and people who seek psychedelic experiences for healing. Go listen to Neil's description of his, uh, he tried ketamine, he tried all sorts of things, but he also tried TMS out of country. And I can't remember which country he was in. It might've been an Asian country. And he said like their they just dialed it up 50 times to what is acceptable in the U S and he's, and he, he said it like, it made half his face go numb. And like, he couldn't talk. <laughs> like they were, they were going aggressive with TMS. Yeah, no, I, I remember hearing that story. It's it's wild, but um, the same. Like, I brought it up just as an example of that positive thinking um, as a practice mm -hmm. uh, that you brought up, and I think is a really good point. Is um, we can get stuck in negative, self defeating thoughts, and they matter, and sometimes they're all not even sometimes they're below the surface of our conscious awareness and we need to shine a light on them and uh, practice replacing them with uh, more adaptive or positive thinking. I really like the word practice that, you know, growing up the two realms of my life where the word practice was applied was athletics and music. So I, I learned to play the cello as a, as a high schooler. And to practice, to rehearse, meant to pick a line of music and do the fingering on the cello and the, and the bowing over and over and over and over again, right? And to start slow so you could do it accurately. And then as you develop skill at the slower tempo, you increase the tempo to try to develop skill at the faster tempo until you get to the, you know, the time signature that the piece was written in. And I would notice that I would, you know, do that repetitively until my fingers hurt. And then I would sleep and come uh -huh. back to the cello the next day. And often I had experienced kind of a, a leap in my, my ability. And there's some research to suggest that like, you know, sleeping immediately after trying to learn, you know, skill acquisition helps sort of solidify yeah. that skill acquisition. So the old timey phrase sleep on it actually meant something. Yeah. I used to, uh, record my notes in med school um, that I take during class or that were given on a voice recorder. And then I even tried the silly experiment of playing them while I slept. Um, it more was more disruptive to my sleep than helpful in my uh, test results. So I quickly abandoned that, but uh, the old subliminal but, programming, but, but no, I know what you mean about the music is a great example because uh, even though I took piano lessons for just uh 
a few short years as a kid. Um, if I go sit down to play the song from like a song from Lion King that I, you know, that I learned as a kid, um, I couldn't consciously like see the notes or um, write them out for you, but my hands would just know what to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I mentioned this, I think on one of our previous episodes, but when I was hanging out at your place and your, your son Dallin has a cello and he graciously allowed me to, to fiddle around on it. And I sat down yeah. like literally in consciously, as you're saying, not remembering how to play the thing. And I basically just let my hands do the work and I was able to like play scales and stuff. And it, it, it shocked me. Like it shocked my conscious mind. Oh. I didn't know that I was going to be able to do that, but my body remembered how to do it. So, you know, this speaks to the power of rehearsal and practice uh, that encode habits at the neurological level. And mm-hmm. so, you know, rehearsal and practice matters. So if you want to practice being a more positive person, you can. You start by rehearsing positive interpretations of life. Or if you don't want to do the whole affirmation, fake it till you make it thing, um, you start with rehearsing gratitude. Sometimes even if we're miserable, we can pick out things that we are grateful for that we take for granted. And then that becomes where your mind goes more automatically over time. Yeah, I like that. And here's a Brene Brown-ism for you. Uh, Maybe a thought-provoking one because she said, courage is a habit um, and a virtue. Like Mm -hmm. you get courage by doing courageous acts. You learn to swim by swimming. You learn courage by couraging. Just like pizza is made by pizzaing and yoga mm-hmm. by yogaing, for example. I love that. It reminds me of um, this strategy from Phil Stutz's book, The Tools. And he talks about, he gives you these very specific exercises to do uh, to you know unlock potential, blah, blah, blah self-help stuff. But one of the tools is around the comfort zone. And so, you know, he says, when you are trying to step outside your comfort zone, by the nature of the border of that zone, you're going to encounter discomfort. And so what he says that once you encounter that discomfort, instead of what's natural, and that is to recoil and go back to the comfort zone, you change in your mind, your relationship to the discomfort. And so you start to rehearse the phrases like, I love this pain. I am grateful for this pain, for this discomfort, because I know what it will bring me. That by engaging in this thing, stepping outside my comfort zone, I will get access to all the things that are beyond it that I want to include in my life. New skills, new relationships, new experiences, new accomplishments. And then he says, over time, you develop this habit of instead of when you encounter discomfort running away, it's a, it's a cue to lean in. And then you become, you know, unstoppable. Yeah, it's like we were talking about in the breathwork episode of it can become a habit to just breathe when discomfort arises instead of uh, reach for the nearest numbing tool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this is probably a good time to talk then about how to establish uh, some just some some tips and tricks on how to establish habits. Uh, I really like the way it's been described in these habit books, right? Like uh, the power of habit by Charles Duhigg or atomic habits by James clear, excuse me, tiny habits by, by BJ Fogg. There's a lot of good habit books out there. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but basically, you know, habits occur in four stages that can, that can happen in loops. You have the cue or the trigger, the things that sort of starts this cascade of behavior. Um, so the cue leads to a craving. Um, so, you know, if I, let's say the cue is, uh, I, it's noon and, uh, I notice that it's noon on my watch and that's the cue for a hunger craving. Cause that's usually the time that I eat food. The craving promotes a response. So the response might be, I eat the food, which then provides a reward. Yeah. Reward is satiation, or if it's a very like sugary food, there's more than satiation. It's very pleasant. And that reward is what reinforces the connection between the the cue and the response. And so it just loops that way. And I like to do an inventory of this with clients is, uh, you know, call it a habit map, if you will, just like blank piece of paper, trigger behavior reward. The Mm -hmm. trigger is often something like anxiety due to something you feel, experience, or encounter in life. The behavior being that thing that like procrastinating or drinking another beer or whatever it is that's maladaptive. And the, yeah, the, but the trigger could also be something like, you know, a significant other talking to you in a certain way that causes you to worry, which leads to anxiety. But um, as we take an inventory of this, um, without even worrying about changing it, we're just shining a light on it. Uh, mm-hmm. um, it, we start to see that it doesn't have to be painful or that hard of work um, just because we've failed at most of our habits in the old way of uh, like New Year's resolutions combined with willpower. Um, it's completely understandable. That's not really how the mind works. And we could talk more about that. But, uh, you know, I like it as just as a reminder of, uh, you know, awareness is half the battle. And then if we break it into bite-sized pieces, it's pretty reasonable. We can all change habits uh, and do this work every day if we want. I love that idea, that concept of a habit map. Just to at least start with awareness generating. I did this with a client once um, who wanted to reduce his alcohol consumption. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't an alcoholic. He wasn't drinking so much that it was really, really impairing his functioning. But he wanted to reduce his alcohol consumption. And he noticed certain patterns around his beer drinking. And so we, we did a little habit mapping. And then we did something called habit chaining or stacking. So this was a creative application of this concept, but habit stacking is where, let's say you want to start a new habit and it's really tough. So what you can do is you just add it in close proximity to something you already always do. So if you want to increase the amount of deep breaths you take throughout the day, then you practice breathing deeply every time you get a notification on your phone. Or every time you brush your teeth, you're going to take three deep breaths before you brush your teeth. So you're just chaining or connecting or stacking this newly desired behavior or habit to something you already always do. So with this client, what we didn't want to, I just said, don't change anything. Don't drink less. Don't drink more. All I want you to do is every time you reach for that first beer, I want you to pause, breathe and ask yourself, what am I trying not to feel? And then go ahead and drink it. But I just want you to create this habit. And so yeah. he did. And as a result, he under he learned more about his relationship to alcohol. And then uh, under his own, you know, by his own accord, he started to reduce what how much he was drinking. Yeah. No, I like that example a lot. It, um, you know, 
we've got to know what we're what we're craving, what the reward is, mm-hmm. and we and then identifying it lets us replace it with an alternative that meets the, meets our needs, um, but in a more adaptive way. Um, because until then, we're just like banging our heads against the wall, um, trying to like we were talking about last time, change our minds with the mind that got stuck in the first place. And sometimes mm-hmm. it, you know, it takes, we've got to use the, the mental and somatic machinery in our favor rather than fighting against it. Um, because these, these are strong forces. Right. Right. And I'm willing to bet everybody who's listening to this, if not most people who are listening to this have had that experience of banging their head against the wall where they, they feel like they, if they just had enough willpower, then they should be able to stop doing this or they should be able to start doing this. And then, then all that self-judgment crops up. Like, oh, I must be broken. I must be weak. I must be stupid. Because if I was whole or if I was you know, uh, smart or if I was strong, then I should or would be able to do this thing, to stop this bad habit or start this good one. But that those beliefs are based on a misunderstanding of human psychology and neurology, right? So that's one of the reasons why we're talking about this stuff. It's really, really normal for willpower to run out. If if you want to eat less sugary things and your pantry is filled with sugary things, you're probably going to fail. <laughs> that yeah. habit's probably not going to go really well because your environment isn't conducive to this new identity of a person who eats healthier foods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you don't really eliminate bad habits or maladaptive habits you replace them with others Mm -hmm. ones that are more in line with your values Um, so essentially you're keeping the trigger identifying the rewards and keeping it there you're just changing what gets you from uh from cue to reward you're changing the routine Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's something that uh, duhigg talked a lot about in his book but uh if you can just replace that connection between Q and something else. So I think one of the examples he gives is like, you know, person it's snack time or smoke break time or whatever gets up, goes and smokes, comes back in. And, uh, so this person wanted to stop smoking. So everything remains the same except for the reward, same Q, same time of day or the desire to go take a break. And instead, the person grabs an apple and walks out to the smoke break area, eats an apple instead. Is it exactly yeah. like the cigarette? Of course not. Apple doesn't have nicotine in it, but um, you know, it's closely mimicking the reward of getting a break, uh-huh. of getting up from his desk, of being with other people, but he's replacing it with the apple. And over time, if you repeat that long enough, like we keep saying, then he creates a new chain. Yeah. And you know what's interesting to me is that we don't win these habit victories in the moment that they recur like Mm. you know there are these studies showing that if you just apply some simple if then logic in advance like it's essentially stating your intention if i feel the urge to blank then i will do this like the new thing you want to do and you know if people adopt a simple strategy like that might be 90 percent likely to Uh, eliminate a simple bad habit compared to like 30 something percent likely to eliminate it without that. If they're just like, okay, I'm, I'm gonna, next time this thing comes up, I'm going to win the battle. Mm. Like you do need a strategy. 
Yeah. And, and again, just to repeat it, the strategy is more than just, I'm going to have more willpower next time. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you wanna, uh, you want to set yourself up for success. So you, you, uh, create, well, so I think again, James Clear does a good job of talking about this with his, I think he calls them the, I've got my notes here, like the four laws of creating a good habit. I'll just go through them really quick. Read the book folks. It's a good book. But, uh, number one, um, the first law is make it obvious. So he has uh, this habit scorecard that you can fill out where you write down your current habits so you can become aware of them. That's what we've been talking about, about awareness generating. Mm-hmm. And then number two, the second law is make it attractive. So um, I combined habit stacking and make it attractive in order to get me into an exercise habit where there was an energy drink that I really liked that I said, I'm only allowed to drink if I get up and work out. It's going to be my workout drink. And so it got to the point where like I'd get up at six in the morning and kind of be in bed and be like, I don't know if I want to get out of bed to work out, but I do want to drink that drink. So I'm going to get up. And now, you know, my relationship to working out is I don't even drink that drink anymore. I don't even touch it. But if I don't work out, I get uncomfortable. Like it's harder for me not to work out than it is to work out now just because I've been doing it for so long. Yeah, that's a good example. So it worked for you. Yeah. To make it, make it attractive. And then uh, the third law is make it easy. So that's the environment stuff we were talking about. Reduce the friction between you and this aspirational identity and this this new habit or behavior. So prime your environment. Um, he has something he calls the two-minute rule. So you, when you're starting a habit, make it really, really small. Make it uh, achievable in two minutes. So the habit mm-hmm. isn't that you're trying to make isn't to go from somebody who's never exercised a day in their life to somebody who exercises two hours every day. It's to go from somebody who's never exercised a day in their life to somebody who takes a two minute walk after lunch. Go for the small wins. Yeah. Right. That's because you get, you get some, uh, ne- some juicy neurotransmitters in response to those that are reinforcing. Right. Um, other ways to make it easy, you know, like automated things. If you want to donate more to charity, make an automated donation to your favorite charity. Don't, don't make, don't make it you know, a willpower thing. We have to remember every time. The fourth law is make it satisfying. So he talks about using positive reinforcement, you know, rewards, um, and chain those with habits that you're trying to establish that right now aren't super reinforcing. So that you could also say that the drink uh, that I was talking about before is like a reward for completing the workout until working out itself becomes rewarding. Yeah, no, that's a great example. And one most people can relate to, like, who do you know who hasn't, tried to embark on more of a, an exercise, fitness, healthy living journey. <laughs> yeah. I use that one just because it's been my experience. But as you say, I think it's uh, a lot of us. We all know that exercising is important for longevity, for not only lifespan, but also health span. Something Dr. Peter Atia uh, talks about a lot, the host mm-hmm. of the podcast, The Drive. But you know, not, not only do you want to live long, but you want to live long and be healthy until the day you're gone. So, uh, exercise is important, but it's something that's really hard, mm-hmm. really hard for us to do. And, uh, this, this whole, um, habit topic or conversation dates back thousands of years. If you look at the ancient Buddhist, uh, thinkers, you know, I think they called it, uh, well, it's, it's called now this dependent, origination, like this process before we had computer cell phones, papers of a way of understanding the universe, there's a cue 
that goes into our mind, a trigger, gets interpreted as pleasant, unpleasant, and then we have an urge, a natural inclination to make unpleasant things go away, right? And make the pleasant things stay, you know? And then this is, uh, this is where some of our ego and self-identity is born from, like where we start to get identified with our actions and then it gets reinforced and perpetuated. Um, and it's probably why Alan Watts says that the ego is nothing but a pattern of habits. Mm. Um, because it all happens in the state of ignorance. Like, and I, I believe this is that, you know, when we don't have full 100% self-awareness, which we do not, uh, naturally as humans. And, uh, and I don't think anyone really does all the time. Um, cause there are habitual things we do. There's this, uh, veil over us or this subconscious machinery always at play. Um, because we aren't seeing the world more clearly and psychology might call it subjective bias. Um, uh, and because we start to learn based on our previous actions, even if they're not the best ones, um, like I'm sad, eat a cupcake and then I feel better. And then it starts to repeat itself. And this from a Buddhist lens is, uh, uh one of the big root causes of a lot of our suffering, the, uh, these maladaptive habit loops. Yeah, our attachment to our desires, right? Leading to suffering and to our egos. So maybe if we could amend Batman's statement, it's uh, it's not who I am underneath, but what I do that defines my ego. Because I think yeah. a lot of these spiritual traditions would say that we are something other than our egos underneath. Like at our core, we are something more, something transcendent. Yeah, yep. Um in the Dhammapada, like a, a Buddhist text, it says something like, just as a tree cut down can grow again if its roots are undamaged and, and strong in the same way, if the roots of our cravings aren't fully uprooted, those sufferings will sprout again and come back over and over. Like, mm. And there's craving at the core. Interesting. And that makes me think of the psychedelic uh, conversation around change because, you know, you hear people going down to Mexican clinics and getting Ibogaine treatment for their opiate addictions and coming out of that treatment, the, the, with no more cravings, right? They just don't want the drug anymore. You hear the same thing with LSD and the old alcohol research and the psilocybin and smoking cessation. It's not like it just convinces them this is a bad idea and that they should then work harder at it. It's like the cravings are gone. They've uprooted the cravings. Yeah. And it's uh, it lines up with the Hindu view from the yoga world that uh, like your yoga practice is uh, based on this idea that we are basically a pile of old habitual patterns. And mm -hmm. there's even a word for it in Sanskrit, samskaras. And uh, uh, there's this one yoga teacher I like who said that these, you could see these samskaras, these piles of habits like almonds that are say planted in the field of our consciousness. And, um, and you know, we, this is a fertile ground, so it grows and, uh, and so they sprout and put down roots of suffering, like attachment aversions and, uh, the whole idea of like a yoga practice and even like shadow work in general is based on like taking that flashlight, going into the dark corners of yourself, 
scanning the field of your consciousness and finding these, like these almonds, if you want to use that analogy, and excavating them. And we collect them. And then in the yoga practice, there's this idea of like the purifying fire of the practice, or they call it tapas. Um, and so say you throw them in the frying pan, you cook them so much that they cannot sprout again, like we were just talking about in the, the Buddhist text. Um, and then uh, because there might be big roots, you might be doing some digging to pull them out, or you might not even want to cut them out because the, these trees are so familiar, even mm. though they bear fruits of suffering. Um, and so then it may be all we know, like that's how we view the world. But then uh, like sometimes, whether it's through a psychedelic experience or an aha moment or repeated practice doing work on ourselves, we might have this like crack in our worldview or this awakening and be like, oh shit, you know, th this is suffering. These are like, these familiar trees are, um, are creating a lot of suffering in my life and maybe even the lives of others. Maybe you've been a messenger of suffering, bringing it around and, you know, your heart might break in that moment because you've been unknowingly like passing on, whether it's through generations or those around you, some of the suffering, but then you know, through these practices, we're using yoga as an example, we can like plant consciously new seeds um, to bear the fruit of like love and compassion, like karuna would be compassion in Sanskrit or like kindness, maitri, and then, you know, forge ahead that new path more consciously. Yeah, I mean, what you're describing is what basically what we're talking about when we talk about integration after a psychedelic experience. The the oh shit moment <laughs> that you pointed yeah. out is my favorite moment of working with, you know, we work a lot with ketamine, um, doing ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. When people can have that type of insight that just all of a sudden everything looks different. Their lens has been replaced with a different lens. Um but like you also said, when we are, we become attached to some of our habits because they are old, because they are familiar and because to some extent they might work. We talk about this a lot when we are helping people change self-defeating habits related to trauma or attachment, right? These are parts that have been using these strategies for a long time and they're nervous to let them go. And so the psychedelic experience can give you new perspective on what's possible. And then integration, uh, I like the metaphors, but like planting this and nourishing and cultivating the seeds so that they can bear fruit. Yeah, it's, uh, it's so true. And this is how we're wired. It's how we work. It, like you mentioned addictions, um, but look at like the whole field of eating disorders, the whole relationship with food and body, you know, largely based on these habit loops. Look at self-compassion as an intervention mm -hmm. for a lot of what ails us um, based on habit loops of negative uh, thoughts and uh, behaviors <laughs> towards self. Um, right. And look at our relationship, maladaptive relationship patterns, uh, habitual things that we might have like learned early in our lives, laid down deeply in the bosom of the family, for example. Yeah, this is how we're wired, which can be, you know, intimidating, right? This is how we're wired and it's partly why it's so hard to change. But uh, it's also inspiring because because we know this about us, we know this, that this is how we're wired, then we can wield these tools to make yeah. changes, right? I mean, 
We see people change, make really substantive, durable changes all the time. And a lot of my clients come in, uh, you know, discouraged because, hey, I've tried this, I've tried that. I just can't seem to change. I've lost faith in me. Uh, how many New Year's resolutions am I going to fail at before I just finally figure out that I'm worthless, that <laughs> I can't do this? So to help them use the power of psychedelic-assisted medicine, but also the power of these concepts of behavior change uh, is really, really fun and interesting and fulfilling because you can see real, durable, lasting changes in people. Yeah, it, it can be fun to play with. It's it. This is kind of the application of what we talked about last week with neurotransmitters and how the brain mm -hmm. works um, is using that knowledge in hacking our habit loops. And I actually like to call them reward-based learning systems to put a mm -hmm. positive spin on it. Um, that whole idea of, of uh, cue, behavior reward, um, things that make you feel good um, as you're moving towards them, dopamine. When something unpleasant is happening, uh, what does the brain do? It, it, uh, you know, will recoil from that and turn towards something that will give you more dopamine. So you'll feel mm -hmm. better. And if we know how we work, then we can use it uh, to our advantage as well. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of something I said last time too, but I think bears repeating is that uh, the human organism evolved for survival not necessarily for happiness. We're really oh. good at running away from what we think, what we perceive to be a threat and toward what will give us comfort. And we're just in an environment now that's that our nervous system didn't necessarily evolve to handle. So we got to retrain it. And these sort of habit strategies uh, are a great, great way to do that. Yeah. Um, there's some interesting like studies on it. I was... Uh, remembering through our conversation like in the in the eating disorder world i remember one brain imaging fmri study where uh researchers looked at individuals with anorexia and those without and asked them to rate a food um on a scale of one to five on uh um, whether it was healthy or unhealthy, like one completely unhealthy, five super duper healthy, and then asked to rate it on a taste scale, like one taste terrible, five tastes amazing. And uh, then researchers picked this food they ranked as neutral in both, um, kind of randomly from the list. And then they were asked to pick between the participants asked to pick between the neutral item and other ones they ranked and individuals with anorexia had a really different response in their brain. Like there was more brain activity on the scan in the dorsal striatum, the part that's the habit center, right? So the, when this lit up, it was just showing that with anorexia of AKA a restrictive eating pattern, they weren't choosing not to eat and they weren't choosing only to eat super healthy food. The brain was just on autopilot, um, lighting up this habit center, um, moving towards the, the healthy or the, the moving away from the unhealthy choices. Um, so they were right there unconsciously in the scanner, slipping into a deeply ingrained pattern of restrictive eating. Um, that just reminds me of, you know, we don't choose to end up in maladaptive habit places. Like we might mm -hmm. consciously choose the first time or two to not eat something 
uh, because we think it'll make us gain too much weight. But like, and in this is this happens more in some people than others, depending on your genetic risk and all these other factors. But um, you know, if you're at risk and it's and it hits that threshold of uh, becoming a habit for you, pretty soon it's just on autopilot, and you're not choosing each day consciously to wake up and do this maladaptive thing. You would love to get out of that, but but it became a pattern. Yeah, it's such an important thing to understand because it helps us be more self-compassionate, right? We take the moral judgments out of our behavior when we can see them as these uh, these habit patterns, these reinforced subconscious habit patterns. That's not to say we aren't responsible for what we do, but I'm not going to have a free will and determinism debate right now. But it, <laughs> yeah. it, uh, it does, I think, at least for me, prompt some self-compassion when I'm trying to change and it's hard. Mm -hmm. Because they're actually like these behaviors are actually well intended. The the it may have shown up at a time. We could be talking about disordered eating behavior patterns. We could be talking about um, like maladaptive anything, right? They they can be well intended, and and the reason we started it and keep it are very different. Like um, it's. Uh, it may have been us protecting ourselves from something much worse or coping with some stressors in the best way we possibly could at the time. Right. Right. Well, Reed, anything else about habits um, that we think might benefit our listeners? Well, um, maybe any, how about a little bit on mindfulness as a strategy, I know we had a great discussion for reference here with Eric Garland on mm -hmm. uh, his therapy for um, opiate addiction, chronic pain, other things called more that leverages a lot of these uh, concepts. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, it might be worth mentioning a little more on how mindfulness can be used. Um, like you were saying to, uh, shine a light of awareness and maybe pause, um, before autom automatically going into these loops. Yeah. So one of the things I like to do with my clients is, is change their, um, sort of their conception of what mindfulness meditation is. Cause there's lots of, lots of ways to do mindfulness meditation and in practice mindfulness generally as a concept. But a lot of times people will come to me and I'll ask them, you know, do you meditate? Have you ever meditated before? And their meditation experience is, yeah, I tried to clear my mind, but I can't, I'm not good at meditation. It's annoying. It's boring. And so I say to them, let's think of it differently. So let's say the objective, if there is one is not to clear your mind. It's not to have a calm mind or to be at peace. It's not to relax or to transcend your ego. Let's instead use mindfulness as a practice of returning to awareness in the present moment. So let's pick a, uh, an anchor point. And sometimes, you know, I did one this morning with a client where we picked the sensation of the air going in and out of the nostrils, cool on the inhale, warm and humid on the exhale. And the objective, if there is one, is simply to notice when you're not paying attention to that anchor point and return, begin, begin again. Now, Notice how I said that, folks. I didn't say that the objective is to stay fixed on the anchor point. That is not the point. The point of the exercise is to notice when you're not and return. So that movement of distraction, 
back to focus, distraction back to focus. You are, like we were talking about before, practicing returning to a mindful, present-centered state of awareness. The objective being that if you do this enough, if you rehearse this pattern, this habit, that you'll, you'll be more likely to use it in your daily life so that when you reach for the beer in the fridge, like with my other client, it's easier for you, more natural for you, more of a habit to pause, return to the present moment, return to awareness, and then evaluate from that place of non-judgmental, present-centered awareness. Do I want to do this thing? Do I want to engage in this behavior? That's one way I think about mindfulness and habits. Yeah, I like it. It's similar to one practice I'll use personally and dish out. It's not the best acronym, but it's something. I'm an acronym fan to have mm. have something accessible at least, but it's this practice called STOP. Um, like anytime I feel an urge or notice a habitual pattern, whether it's thoughts or actions showing up, like the the S is, this is why it's not the best acronym, S is just STOP. So STOP, mm -hmm. um, pause, and then um, the T would be take notice, like breath, um, physical sensations, what's going on in your world? And the O is more like observing the body, the mind, um, you know, this sense and and uh, then going on, going to this P of like, proceed with kindness. Like, what's the most loving thing I can do right now for myself, given that I've had this urge, I'm feeling these things, I'm feeling this craving. Um, proceed with kindness. What do you need for your well-being? Um, and it might be set a timer um, for five minutes and decide I'm not going to do anything until then and see... Uh, what your what your capital S self does at that point, which might have, you know, come back into the driver's seat. But but it's a it's a simple practice that I like to bust out when I when I need a go to tool. I like that, and you know, you could combine what we talked about earlier, habit stacking, with this practice. You could do a brief stop exercise every time you get into your car to drive home from work. Every time you, I, I actually do this, um, I have a habit of whenever I pull into the driveway into my garage and I'm going to oh. go from work, Steve to dad, Steve, um, I will do that. Not exactly that, but I will breathe and try to leave whatever, this is almost like a ritual too, rituals and habits. I guess there's overlap there, but leave whatever I was carrying at work. So I don't bring it in and punish my family with it. Yeah. Oh, that's a really good one. I love those those cues. Like in our meditation practices, in our journaling, in our planning for the day, you know, you can pick those thresholds you pass. Like I'll do it with a certain room I enter. If I'm going to go into a group room and facilitate a group, you know, I'm just going to stare at that door jam and just mm. like seared in my mind to be like, okay, when I enter here, don't forget to represence and breathe. Or I love what the one you said of of when you get home, like putting that more calm self forward. Um, but I guess uh, beyond these uh, tools and tricks, one last reminder I'll give is, uh, you know, be gentle with yourself. Know that setbacks are going to happen. It's like, that's the business of habit change. It's like, mm -hmm. it's by definition full of detours, U-turns, and it's like it's the spiral uh, shaped recovery rather than linear and, uh, be just so forgiving of yourself because, uh, 
the setbacks are actually part of the process. That's part of that hacking the reward circuitry um, to um, steer you towards your values, hopes, and dreams. I love it. Yeah. Expect difficulty, expect mistakes, um, and then get right back on the horse, right? If there is um, Mm -hmm. a really self-defeating pattern, it's the, ah, screw it, right? I, I had this habit I'm trying to establish uh, I broke the chain. I broke the streak. And I guess that means I'm not this person. Ah, screw it. So simply begin again, right back on the horse. I I just need to emphasize what you just said. That's been one of the biggest lessons for me over recent years is I used to find myself giving up for a day and saying, I will begin again tomorrow. Mm. And that was the most counterproductive thing I personally could have ever been doing for my habits, the maladaptive habits. And then when I made that one shift of like, begin again now, mm-hmm. like you don't have to wait for tomorrow. Um, because there are a lot of hours between now and tomorrow. And, uh, if you make it uh, part of the present moment, that's where the actual magic is. And the change occurs like, uh, you know, showing up in that new way now, even if it's a minuscule, uh, step. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Don't wait. Don't wait. Well, thank you, Reed. A very uh, helpful for me, hopefully helpful for our listeners conversation about habits. Likewise. See you next time. Yeah. Thank you, dear listener, for listening. It means a lot to me. Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers is brought to you by Novamind, a mental health company that specializes in psychedelic medicine and research. You can learn more about Novamind's mission to increase access to legal, safe, and evidence-based psychedelic medicine at novamind.ca. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're using to listen or watch. Also, if you're feeling generous today, please leave us a glowing review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. If you'd like to reach out to us with questions, suggestions, scathing criticisms, etc., please email us at psychfrontiers at novamind.ca. Thanks again. Hey listeners, it's Steve Thayer here, letting you know that Numinous offers unique training opportunities for mental health practitioners to develop their skills and expertise in offering psychedelic-assisted therapy to clients. These courses are carefully crafted by Numinous professionals like myself, Reed, Joe, and others and offer a variety of high-quality learning experiences. So if you would like to learn more about these trainings, you can find the link in the show notes below, or you can visit numinous.com forward slash training. That's numinous.com forward slash training. The content of this podcast does not constitute medical advice or mental health treatment. Consult with a medical or mental health professional if you believe you are in need of mental health treatment.